For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. A lot of people live in denial because they think that to be realistic is to be depressing. I'm Dr. Mike, host of Going There. It was the first song where I wrote about how I felt like my depression was killing me and I didn't want it. Going There breaks the stigma of mental health issues by having real honest conversations with your favorite musicians, including Alessia Cara, Lizzie Hale, Jewel, Jason Isbell, Gerard Way, Lauren Gray, Shamir, and Barty Strange. There was something there that was so raw where I was like, wow, I can't believe someone would say that. Let's go there on Going There with Dr. Mike, brought to you by Sound Mind Live and the Consequence Podcast Network every other Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. Welcome. I'm David Frangioni. What an exciting day this is, everybody. Modern Drummer presents Eric Singer and Nico McBrain. So today, before we bring Eric and Nico on, here's an overview of some of the things we're going to talk about. So Eric and Nico are going to talk about their drum kits, their cymbals, their setup, their approach to, to such kits. They both play different setups, as you everybody here knows. Single bass, double bass, different brands, the whole thing. We're going to talk about their early beginnings when they started to play drums, what influenced them and inspires them for drumming, their practice and warm-up routines on and off the road. So, without further ado, we know exactly what we're doing here, everybody. Let's bring on Nico McBrain and Eric Singer live. Come on on, guys. Here we go, Nico. Hey, Eric. what's up? Hey, Dave. Hey, Eric. What's up, dude? Nico, how are you? Oh, very good, mate. Lovely. Hey, this is great to be doing this. Thank you, Dave, and everybody at Modern Drummer. And for your good self, great to share some time with you, Eric. It's been a long time since we've seen one another. Yeah. Are our signals clear, David? Are we all, with no glitching? <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty good. You know, it's, it's typical internet stuff, but yeah. we're, we're going to jump right into it. So uh, this, this is not in any particular order, but let's start with, since we talked about drum kits, Let's start with, we'll start with Eric. And Eric, I want you to share uh, your thoughts on your drum kit. I'm going to bring up some slides here that, uh, that kind of talk to what you're, what you're doing. So here we are. You've been with Pearl for 34 years. You're playing a, a custom fiberglass kit. Before we jump into the specifics of your kit, I know that you're kind of well-versed on all things Pearl as Nico is on all things British Drum Company. So in the Pearl world, they've got these solid shell snares in four different materials and two different sizes that they're really excited about that are really groundbreaking snares. They sound amazing. And I know you're a big fan of them. And they call it the Music City, the MCC, custom solid shell snares that are out now. So let's jump into your setup and let's talk about you and Pearl and, and what you look for in drums, etc. Close my door because a lot of construction going on in this neighborhood. Um, well, just for the record, Pearl did make those one ply 
Back in the early middle 90s for a while, they offered single ply snare drums similar to like a radio king. Um, but they didn't have re-rings, which means reinforcement rings. But they did do that at one time because I have a couple of them. But they were very limited short run. But that's what they're, you know, everybody's always reinventing the wheel. That's what I always say about drums and cars and everything. It kind of sometimes go backwards to go forward. And, and uh, uh, you know, like I'm using fiberglass drums, for example, which is something that was big in the 70s. And then it kind of went out, out of uh, vogue. But um, I always like the sound of them, the attack and all that. So that's what I've been, I've been basically having a guy named Billy Baker in Nashville that resources old vintage pearl kits strips them down, and then puts modern at a, you know, adaption. Uh, he adapts the modern hardware. Like the only thing we use repurposed is the shells and the lugs from the 70s. Everything else is modern pro hardware, and I use the, the Icon rack system that Pro makes now. So, you know, but right now that's the phase I've been going through. And uh, I think Nico will agree. You go through phases, sometimes you hear a certain sound, and you decide, oh, I, I kind of like that, I want to go for that. And um, like I was doing the concert town thing, as you saw those photos, but then I realized they were, it was a lot more work to play the concert town, so I went back to double-headed times to get the rebound and response playing-wise. And uh, so I think drummers are kind of like, uh, you know, we're like kids. We look at our, our drums are like uh, getting a new toy every time you get a new kid, you're like excited. And so you just want to keep experimenting and having fun. That's what keeps me inspired to just, make a new kid and try something different. And then what about snare drums? What do you think about the new Music City Custom, the, the solid shell? Well, the great thing about this Music City stuff is Pearl in the uh, 80s, you used to be able to go and get anything custom made. Then they stopped doing that. And they, everything you had to order custom overseas, which was like a mass kit. But now they decided to make it accessible. You could order a kit from them and literally in two weeks, you know, it, you're limited to a certain shells but, and certain finishes, but once you choose whatever you want, the configuration, they'll have it done in two weeks and sent out to you. Most drum companies, you order a special kit. It can take, you know, I remember I used to play sonar as well, like Nico, for about, from about 78 to about 86. And when I ordered my kit back in 78, it, it took me like six months to get it. But I was in America, mind you. They were coming from America. So to get certain stuff used to take a long time especially if you want to come or specific sizes, rather than what we call the catalog kit, something you saw in the book, and you say, oh, I want N95 or whatever, and they go, okay, boom, no problem. Okay, so, and you've been playing Pearl for 34 years, so obviously you love the sound of the drums, and you love what, you know, what, they've, what they give you for what you're looking for. Well, ironically, I was playing Sonar. They were going to give me a deal, and then they changed their mind, and Pearl called me up and said, hey, we want to give you an endorsement. I'm like, great. And that was it. I've been with them ever since. Amazing. Okay. And one thing I want to share with everybody is that Pearl, in 2021, is celebrating their 75th anniversary. So we're going to see some innovative products, and we're going to see some really cool things coming up. So be on the lookout for Pearl mm. Drums next year. Now, and David, I'm up. told, don't quote me, but I'm told that they're going to make some kind of really cool, special, maybe limited either items, drums, snare drum, or a kit that will coincide with that anniversary. Okay. Nice. Nice. Well, but I don't know. But I did, I did hear talk of it at the NAMM show this year. 
So Nico, British Drum Company. This was big, ah. big news. When this came out, everybody was like, what? <laughs> so here we are, the British Drum Company. Uh, this set's going to look very familiar to you. Uh, the so. question coming in about your kit and the painting and the, the customization yeah. on it. Woo! Let, this yeah. is just unbelievable. So let's talk about what's going on with the British Drum Company and your choice of, of drums. Uh, well, thanks, mate. Yeah, and Eric, great. You know, 34 years, that, that's a true, a, a true dedication. I mean, in our industry, we, for, I'm just going to digress a little before I answer your question. You know, there's a lot of people that go for endorsements for the wrong reasons. They go for like, hey, man, I'm going to get this stuff for nothing. You have to love the product to use it. And Eric, 34 years with, with Pearl, that's beautiful. Um, now, having said that, you know, say again. That's very true. Loyalty, you know, but people go, well, you've changed your drum company three times, Nick. Well, yeah, there's been reasons for that. You know, I, I was with Sona from 1976, like yourself from the early 70s, mid 70s, uh, for 19 years. And then things changed politically. I then went with Premier. Then from Premier, I went back with Sonor, primarily because uh, although I'd met Keith Keogh from the BDC, we had a four year, I went back with Sonor for four years. Um, and then I changed to BDC. So people go, well, are you talking about loyalty? Uh, there is a, a loyalty in my, why I use the equipment is, you know, because I love it. And Sonor were my main go-to company. That's a, the, the very first drum set I ever bought when I was 16 years was a Sonor teardrop, uh, which is now the vintage series drum set. Um, uh, and Premier had 22 years with those guys, you know. Um, but having moved now, uh, I had four and a half years with, uh, with Sonor. Uh, they made me two beautiful drum sets, the Book of Souls drum kit and the Legacy of the Beast kit, which we're still actually are on tour for, um, which is a shame because I'm supposed to be in, I think I'm supposed to be in China, not China, big pardon, Japan or somewhere like that at the moment. But um, obviously with all the pandemic stuff and the old music's on hold until next year. But um, having in a relationship with BDC has, has been incredible. Uh, Keith Keogh was making my drum sets with Premier from 2010. Uh, and he made a couple of amazing drum sets. So I knew what value this guy had as a, as a drum manufacturer and a, as a master craftsman. So um, when things were kind of going a bit pear-shaped with Premier, uh, Keith said, would you come on board and use, use these drums that, uh, that we'd actually designed a drum set while I was working with Premier and Keith and a guy called Craig Buckley. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, getting a hardware program, building a drum, you can build a, a set of drums in two or three days. Shells, and if you've got your hardware, you drill it up and, and it's not a problem. Designing new hardware, that's a different, you know, you have a lot of tooling to do. It's major expensive. Uh, unfortunately, five years ago, British Drum Company didn't have uh, their hardware. So um, I had to decline. And I said, well, look, you know, I'm going to have to go with somebody that, you know, I need to have to support me on tour. And so, you know, that's when I sat back with Sona. But uh, since uh, four years, five years have passed now, um, they've got this incredible uh, hardware program together uh palladium hardware and that's there's a, a line of it's called casino 
which is innovative stuff. It really is it's brilliant. And um, so a guy called Alan Kitchen designed the hardware program with BBC. And we just introduced that at the NAND show. And uh, the, the whole nuance of this company is like a, it's like a family. It totally is. You know, I mean, I'm, I've had a great relationship with Keith and Craig Buckley, who is now actually working a couple of days a week with British Drum Company. And Craig, incidentally, is my partner in Drum One. So uh, we, last year, we designed a couple of snare drums together. I've always wanted to have my own metal snare drum. And so Keith found a guy two minutes across the road from the factory in, in Manchester in, in uh, Stockport, who was a metal spinner. And this guy happened to be a massive Iron Maiden fan as well. But he didn't realize when Keith asked him to make a, a seamless uh, snare drum for us, that he was actually making a snare drum for me. Uh, so it was really quite ironic because he made 12 of these snare drum shells. And when I finally announced that I was going with British Drum Company, he found out and he went, oh my Lord, this is Nico's drums I'm making for him. And he ended up making 40 of them in a week for the drum company, which is quite ironic because he said he could only make 12 a week before. Um, anyway, so he made these snare drums, uh, six and a half, um, and it's a couple of mil thick. Uh, it's British stainless steel. And, uh, and it's, it's, well, it's not stainless, I do beg your pardon, it's British steel. So he spun up one of those and then I said to Keith, can I have a night my own wooden snare as well? And he said, well, let's do a different wood. Uh, as you were talking about, you know, products changing, Eric, you know, like we hear something and you go, oh, I like that. Uh, well, before that, I had a, um, a sycamore wood snare, which, was, uh, which Keith made for me when we were premier. Sonar actually made a couple of snares with sycamore wood, but they were a little bit like, oh, it's not German wood, is it? You know, so they were a little bit upset about it. But nevertheless, oh, yeah. you know, they were, oh, no, we want to use, uh, we want to use German, German, you know, beech wood, which is cool with me. But so anyway, we, we made a snare drum of black oak. And that is what is, uh, which, is, which, is a, which is available. Now, the drum set that you saw the photograph at the beginning, that came out of the snare drum. Because once I saw the snare drum, I said to Keith, wouldn't it be nice if we had uh, a legacy kit? Uh, hello, what's happened? Uh, uh, there it is. Uh, okay, that one. <laughs> so uh, all, all, all square size toms. Um, we have uh, what's called fishtail oak on the outside. We have a, a seven ply, I'm uh, sorry, 10 ply. Uh, it's nine ply of oak, uh, two beautiful mahogany, um, uh, reinforcement rings, a couple of ply reinforcement rings on there, and then and, and that that was this this legacy kit. Um, the, so Nico, let me let me ask you real quickly. These shells are almost thicker to like the horse link, like those the the sonar signature type drums, right? No, the, the, these are these are ten these are about ten mil ten ply. They're they the uh, they're nine ply, and then you've got the you know the outside ply makes up to ten. Um, I think the bass drum's 13, but they're very thin, Eric. They're not really, yeah. I mean, it, in fact, it, you know, the new, the new Sonor um, Beach kit, they, they got a, a light, a medium, and a heavy. Uh, they, and I went for a medium thinking that it would be like the um, half-inch nine-ply beach woods of the old days, but they're very thin as well. So... Um, it's different in, technique so, and t technology of, of building uh, uh, tom-toms now. You know, so Nico, oh. you, have, you have a snare in steel and you have a snare in wood. Yeah. And Eric, what is your signature snare? What is it made out of? 
Well, I've had two signature snares. One was was an a, a, was a ten ply maple snare that was a silver lacquer finish back in the early 2000s. But the one they make now is similar to like a pearl, what they call the Jupiter snare in the 70s. It's a chrome over brass, six and a half, mm. um, with three three center lines, kind of like. You know, Stuart Copeland was famous for playing a Pearl Jupiter snare on all those police records. Even though he played Tama, he was always playing using a Pearl snare drum. Mm. But uh, the question I have for Nico, because that Carl Palmer kit that you had, David, was made by British Steel. And you mentioned British Steel Shell. So is any relation yeah. there? Or no? no, no, no. A totally different guy. Um, he, he, he's a fellow up in Manchester. Um, I'm, I think the fellow that British Steel that made that kit was, was from London. I believe is that right, David? I think so. Yeah. I, yeah, I that, kit, that kit was uh, built. I, I actually think I know where the workshop is. It was at the back of uh, Euston Station, Kings Cross, that area. Wow. And uh, I think that kit weighs like four hundred pounds or something crazy like that. It's got <laughs> handles on the bass drum to lift it up. The bass drum's four hundred pounds. The oh, kit, the bass drum's <laughs> two tons. It's so, so guys, get, so that's what you're using for drums. Now, mm. for cymbals, we've got Peisty and we've got Zildjian. Uh -huh. So just talk a little bit about, you know, what you're looking for in the cymbals and, and why you've chosen them. Everybody can go online and see what sizes and all mm. that stuff. But what's, what's behind the, the, the choice? You know, what do you, what do you like about them and, and, and how does it work for, because you guys are both playing huge places to huge crowds with mm -hmm. loud, music loud on stage high energy let's talk about peisty and zildjian they're both great brands yeah and uh and i want to do a shout out to kelly peisty because she's been such a great uh supporter of, of all us drummers for so long and of modern Without drum i know she's a mutual friend of ours nico so let's talk about peisty and zildjian what do you guys think eric you want, to, you want to kick that one off all right well i mean i think a lot of times what we play is what we were introduced to and I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. So if you grew up in Cleveland, you pretty much mostly played either Rogers drums or Ludwig because Rogers originally were made in Cleveland. So it was very prevalent in that region of the country. And my dad had, uh, my dad could play a little bit of drums. And I remember he had a hi-hat with an old pair of Zildjian's. So that was my first exposure was Zildjian cymbals. And, um, you know, but I will admit I have Sometimes uh, I love sound edge hi-hats, 2002s. I have a few, I have like three sets of them. Um, so sometimes for recording, it depending on what I'm doing, I will sometimes use a set of Pisces sound edge because those hi-hats are amazing for recording. But for a long time, I had kind of like a little combination. I was using a Pisces sound edge bottom and a Zildjian heavy bottom on top. So oh, I was using cool, yeah. And for some reason, that was a great sound, and for for most of like say late seventies up to till the time I got a Zildjian endorsement, that was my Hyatt combo of mm. Pisces and a Zildjian. Excellent, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I think you're right. You know, when I started using Pi, originally the first symbol I ever actually bought, because um, when I I had yeah, when I say I bought, I was I had Super Zins and Zins and Ufip symbols from like on my very first drum set. And then the rule, you know, they were like sort of inferior to the Zildjian and the Pisces that were around at the time. And I, my first symbol I actually bought was an 18 inch heavy band Zildjian, 18 inch. And I'll never forget, it cost me 18 quid. In the old days, it was a pound an inch. Okay. 
What do you mean I'm worth 50 bucks? What are you saying, darling? Okay. Um, anyway, so I bought this symbol and, and I was in love with it. And I, I put it on my kit and I use it as a ride and it fell off the cup. And I was, I was heartbroken. I was probably like 15 years old or something like that when I bought this symbol. And then the next thing is I thought, a, a friend of mine worked in a music shop and he introduced me to the Sound 7 set. And this was a set of 602 Peisty cymbals. And I think there was a set of IATs, a six inch bell, a ride and a couple of crashes, you know. So I, was, I fell in love with the Peisty just because they looked so cool. And it wasn't really anything to do with the sound for me. And then I actually started to get, you know, uh, do some session work when I was in my, my, my late teens. And I actually started buying Peisties. And um, they just, uh, they, the consistency of those symbols, I'm sure it's probably like Zildjian. I'm, I'm sure they have, a, you know, anywhere you go in the world, you can buy an 18 inch heavy crash symbol, uh, 2002, six, you know, uh, signature line symbol. And it's the, the way they manufacture these sounds and they test them. They have a guy that sit, he's completely crazy. These people that, that they sit in the room and test the symbols, got a master symbol that travels around with the symbols. The consistency is what r really brought me into the symbols and the, you know, and the sounds. So I've, I've had this relationship and this love affair with the brand. And then I, you know, got involved with the, with the family, with Tomas and, and Robert Peisty, who are no longer with us and then met Eric and Eric got married to Kelly and uh, we've had an amazing relationship and I'm, I'm proud to be able to say that I'm an ambassador for the, for the brand as well as um, loving, the, loving the symbols. Now for live, I was always using, leaning towards the signatures because they cut across so the band can really hear you when you're attacking a crash symbol, good, good bell and sticking sound off the rides. And it's just rides are great. Oh, they're, they're, they're stunning. And, you know, I, I just have this love affair and this passion. And, and as I said, uh, the other thing, I'm going to plug them a bit because now there's a, you can go online and you can actually probably order symbols and there's a little sound library if you want. It's nothing like hearing the real thing. As you know, I still get a vibe when I go into a drum shop and see all these wonderful drum sets and this new, new gear, old gear, vintage stuff, symbols. And I, I just have this love. I've always had bucket loads of symbols around my drum set. So uh, yeah, that's, that's it for me. And uh, you know, the, the consistency of wherever you are in the world, if you, if, and they crack, you crack symbols, I crack. You can't say you don't, because uh, they do, they go, they, go. they work hard and over time. It's a, it's a brass alloy and, and they work hard. And it's funny enough, some people go, well, my symbol don't sound like it used to. Give it a year, it'll be fine, it'll come back. Um, but we crack them. And the thing is, if you crack a Pisces, any one of their lines of symbols in the top range, medium to top line, they're all handcrafted that you can go and they're, so, they're tested. So you know you can just go pick one off the shelf, stick it on your drum set, and you're not going to hit it and go, hmm, that doesn't sound right. You know, cool. And that's important. Now, Eric, you still... Well, David, I wanted to make a point to Nico's, to, to that exact point. There is different schools of thought. Some people, that is exactly the reason they like Pisces because they go, if I break my crash, I can go buy another one. It's going to yep. replace it the same. But then there's the other school of thought, well, I like Zildjian's because they're very individual sounding. Yeah, yeah. But, but you have to go and go through a bunch of them to find the ones that you think sound good to yeah. hear. The yeah. only downside, when you break your favorite crash symbol, your, especially your favorite rider pair of hats, because those are the main things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
you're not finding there you're not going to find another one that's going to sound the same yeah yeah that's the downside to it Vinny Calyuta told me that he switched to Paiste for the exact reason that Nico just stated he told me that he because he plays all over the world and he said if I'm not carrying cymbals and I'm going to do something a few dates in Japan or something like some jazz stuff he can get a set of cymbals there for him and he yeah. goes I'm going to get on the kit and they're going to sound exactly what I just left at home in LA absolutely so yeah but now, Eric, you also play Zildjian drumsticks, right? Yes. Okay, so that's your drumstick of choice. I think you have a signature model. Yeah, which is basically similar to like, I mean, I have to tell the truth. When I, uh, when I first started playing their sticks, I was one of the very beginning ground guys started playing them. And they were going through a few growing pains of consistency. And then eventually they said, hey, we'll make your own stick. So I tried different sticks to find something I like. And basically... My stick was a Joey Kramer model that was just cut down because Joey Kramer had redesigned a new model that he, did. he didn't like his old signature for some reason. So I thought his stick, or I go, I like the bead and I just, it's just a little too long. So we cut off about that much and that became my signature stick. So that's yeah. actually the origin of, of my particular stick, which is kind of in a 2B family, if you will. Mm. So pretty heavy stick. What do you heavy. play? Yeah, you you're play? a brute. <laughs> You're a brute. That's all I can say. <laughs> oh, no. Nico, I, how about Cozy, uh, Cozy Powell used to use those two S's? Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, he he. Um, I remember years back we we did a show together in uh, in Rio, Rock in Rio. I think it was eighty eighty five. They uh, Michael Schenker was on the same bill that Maiden when we did our first, and and I remember meeting him, and and he came up and I I won the uh, Kerrang Music Award for top rock drummer and he's always won it and he came up to me and he, he says boy let me have a look at your hands and i thought he was looking to to you know compare calluses because then when we were younger we beat the nine living daylights out of the drum set and try and break everything which is not quite the way you're supposed to play but and i thought he's like oh i said yeah look i've got a real bad he said no no he said i want to see your finger and your your your, 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 your forefinger and your thumb from writing all those votes that you said in. And I'm like, oh, you cheeky bugger. But um, I said to him, Why, what, what's going on? He said, I'm actually, you know, I, he said, I think I might start. And he actually went away from that to S, to a, a smaller, a, a lighter stick. Because I think you know, as you get older, you know, your wrists start to play up and, you know, carpal tunnel. You're right. Yeah. I have, because I, I was a big Cozy Powell fan. I have, his, I have one of his snare drums and I have his bass drum, black 26-inch Yamaha bass drum has with oh, Cozy Powell. Cool. Oh. I got those off one of his kits, and um, I got some. I have some of his sticks, so I have the original big two S's. But he did go down to more like a probably like a two B. Yeah. Kind of losing now. He he went way down in size. You're absolutely right because yeah. get older and think about it, he was only fifty when he passed away. Yes, yes, tragic. Yeah, young guy. So guys, let's Nico. Yeah, Mike. You, you you're a drum nut like the rest of us. Eric and I have like yourself, big drum collections. I'm sitting in the Modern Drummer Hall of Fame. It's Alex mm -hmm. Van Halen's drum kit right there. And, yep. and, and you know, amazing kits. Now you start a drum shop. Nico oh, yeah. McCray's Drum One. And <laughs> so just talk for a minute about that because I think it's just so cool mm -hmm. and, and what a show of passion. Yeah. Because oh, I'm he, telling you, walking oh, into a drum shop is so David, Nico's fulfilling the drummer's dream, all of us, remember going to an amazing drum shop when we were kids. We had one called Terra 2 Percussion in Cleveland when I was a kid. 
And this guy was like a drummer's drummer, always had the newest stuff, you know, odd kids, Milestone, Tempest. He's the first guy that had sonar drums when I was a kid. And you always wish, man, I'd love to have a drum shop. And so you're getting mm. to that dream that we all wish we could have. Absolutely. And it really came about, funny enough, by, uh, by accident almost, because, um, I, you know, I, I spoke earlier about Keith and uh, Keith Keogh and, and Craig Buckley, who Craig Buckley was a GM of Premier for a, a number of years uh, at, around the time that I met Keith. And uh, Anyway, he called me about three years ago and he, he, was, he was saying, oh, you know, um, the Manchester Drum Centre, the, the guy, I think his name's Roy, uh, it was selling it. And uh, he said, oh, he said, um, I'm thinking of, um, you know, buying this drum shop. He said, uh, you know, so it sounds like a real good, you know, he's got 70 grand's worth of stock. It, it comes in with the deal and all this, you know, malarkey. Anyway, right, long story short, uh, actually even longer, he, he's on the phone and he's going, so, you know, what do you think? I said, so uh, what are we going to call it? And beca because the, the association of the two of us was always we, uh, me, meaning me, him, and Keith Keo, doing all these things together with Premier and whatnot. And I, anyway, so I, I said, "What we?" Get? He says, "Oh, you want him then?" <laughs> and I right. said, "Yeah, sure, why not?" So that's how it, all, it, it came about. Let me put it this way: I didn't start off um, over these years thinking that's what I was going to do was to buy a drum shop. I had that passion when I was a lot younger. And it never really occurred to me to even think about it until somebody sowed that seed, which was Craig. And, uh, and well, I said, now look at the shop. Like when somebody comes in yeah. there, or I've, I've visited it online and mm -hmm. it's just a lot of fun and it's got a lot of cool Nico maidenism like kind of vibe. Yeah. Well, the thing was, you know, obviously once we started to talk about it and he said, let, let, do you want to come in as a partner with me? And, and we, we're 50-50. There's no, there's no, I've got more than him or anything like that. Uh, we got Sam uh, McCowan as, as, as our general manager and Phil Pesky. He's a, he, <laughs> Phil Pesky, he's a right love. So there's four of us. Uh, and so the, the idea was to use it as Nick Hummett Brains Drum One. And obviously we had a lot of, you know, we had the Sonosphere in there. We got Planet Pisces, all of my top Dorsey stuff. I'm trying to push more, obviously, because that's why I use it. But to walk it, when I'll never forget the first day I walked through that door was like, Eric, as you said, when you were a kid, you know, a lot younger. And I had that feeling like I still get when I go into a, a pawn shop, which got drums and stuff in, or a, no pawn, P-A-W-N, boys and girls. Um, you know, that you know, you have that passion for that still, we, we still carry that passion as you do too, Dave, across your life. You never lose that, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, to actually own a drum shop store and, and, and see this, and, and of course, going to NAMM show this year, I was actually going around as a retailer, meeting guys that were making snare drums and, and different drum companies and going to see who, who you know, obviously Sona, you know, we talked to Sona, but uh, unfortunately I can't just sell their snare drums. I have to sell all their drums. So I said, okay, well, you know, we can, do, we can still do that. There's no animosity. This is a business, you know. Well, it's fantastic. I just think as a fan and as somebody who's, you know, especially there's so many guys who've grown up inspired by both of you guys. But in your case, Nico, now they can go and shop drums that you've kind of handpicked. Like, okay, this is how I'd like 
a drum shop to be. Yes, exactly. And, uh, it's exciting. It's exciting yeah. stuff. So I've just got to say one one thing is is a bit of a bit of a, a, a bugbear for us right now because obviously with this pandemic on, we, we, I think the idea is to open in a couple of weeks because a non-essential business, retail business, is asked to hold off for a bit, right? So and um, you, you you say non-essential, of course it's essential. We gotta buy we gotta buy our cymbals, our new drum sets, our new new drum heads and drumsticks. Now the problem is, we can't have the kids come in the shop and go up and pick a pair of sticks out and try them, which is a bit sad because you know when kids are starting off or uh, even adults that have decided to pick up a pair of sticks, they gotta know you know they're not gonna pick up two S's or, or two B's. You know, they're right. going to go for a, maybe an E or a foot, you know, or a, a usually five, five A's or B's or something like that. So now we can't have kids handling them. And so that's a bit of a bugbear for us, you know. And it's still going to beat nine living daylights out of a drum set, if you like. But you've got to bring your own sticks. <laughs> Nico, do you remember in the early days of 70s, Vicksburg sticks used to come in a sealed bag. You couldn't pick, play them. Yeah. And they used to pitch pair. They were matched, supposedly. That's right. Them. They were in a sealed bag, so you couldn't try them out. You had to just buy the bag or the pair of sticks that way. Yeah. That's yes, right. different, so different, different days. Yeah, now the kids, you know, we, we offered, um, you know, practice pads or snare drums uh, for kids to pick a pair of sticks out. And, uh, you know, we'd have, you know, demo sticks, if you like, and they could use them. But obviously now we're going to have to rope that, you know, put a little rope off there until such times as, uh, I mean, if they come in with a pair of sticks, they can have a go on a drum set and try some new stuff out. But, you know, um, still be even, yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, you know, we're not going to be able to see live music and, and audiences in, in their throngs, as we say, for a while now, as we know, because of this, this nasty pandemic, but you know, it doesn't mean to say you can't still practice at home. And, um, you know, uh, I must admit, electric drum sales have gone up pretty well. <laughs> oh, they sure have. And, and in fact, talking about practicing at home, yeah. let's talk about you guys, your early beginnings when you started to play drums, your influences, your inspiration from what got you into it to kind of what inspires you today and keeps you motivated and, and, and still is an influence. I know Eric mentioned Cozy Powell, so mm -hmm. I want to hear Eric's thoughts. I want to hear your thoughts, Nico. Let's talk about influences and inspiration and, and starting from beginning to, to now in kind of a consolidated timeline of, of what you can give the readers, the viewers today for, for insight and really advice through your insight. Go ahead, Eric. You kick off. Uh, it's based on, I've always been more of a band guy, so I'm in, I was always inspired by a band and, and then if I like the band usually the drummer follows suit with that you know like I was geeking out a little earlier being a fanboy to Nico um, because my brother one day brought home Pat Travers album and um, in the 70s and I was like right I was like holy shit what's this and I loved it and it was Nico on drums and the drum by the way Nico your drum sound that you got on those two Pat Travers albums you mm -hmm. did especially I think putting it straight you know, there's that one song where you do the face, the instrumental. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You do the big opening fills. and Yeah. Drum sound is so great on that album. And I just think you're playing. I always thought, like, when you play Maiden, it's obviously great, but you, you really, like, had a funk R&B. You were like a white funk drummer when you were in Pat Travers. <laughs> and very, like, a lot of it, you know, that music, that music is very syncopated. 
and it's a lot of riff rock. So your drumming style was like perfect for that. And um, so I always wondered, like, who were your influences? Because when I hear you playing that stuff, it's like you're like a different drummer on that music, literally. Well, well yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, Nico, before you answer that, I want to add, we got a ton of questions about Nico and his approach to grooving from that exact era. And oh, I mean, wow. it was awesome to see how many people have followed your career from then to now and are still being inspired and influenced by that style as much mm -hmm. as we got a lot of Where Eagles Dare questions, which oh. we'll get to everybody, so simmer down. <laughs> but we got a lot of the, the funk and like another side of you. Well, okay. that, yeah, that, sorry, go ahead, Eric. No, I was gonna say, it sounded like you must've been influenced by all those Motown and R&B drummers because that's, you can hear that influence in your drumming on that, those records. Yeah, well, I, I can't, my, my early, ex, you know, I went through the pop phase when I was learning, um, you know, the Stones, Beatles and uh, Marvin Gaye, all those kind of guys. I was playing full, sort of pop music, soul music, went into blues. And then obviously from my style, from what I was playing, the music that was, that I was playing in, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies, then transferred into um, this kind, this this kind of funk stuff. I mean, that was my main go-to. What I love to play, in the, <clears throat> sorry, in the, you know, I used to play in a, a a band called Major Ball, and we were doing stuff like Blood, Sweat and Tears, Chicago songs, but still had that. They still, you know, Danny Seraphine had that stunning funk groove himself. He had these incredible chops and. You know, so my my style came from all these different genres of music, and um, then from that I went into a band called Streetwalkers, which were actually a blues rock funk band, and they they were just uh, I did two albums with these guys, uh, Downtown Flyers and, and Red Card, and um, the bass player was you know it, to to move on to how my I think really how my style progressed was the bass players that I played with. They were the, the primarily funk players. And then when I came out of Streetwalkers and went with Pat Travers, we had the great, wonderful Mars Peter Cowlin. Amazing, bass. amazing. Yeah. And, and that guy and I, we just, we just clicked, because I had this funk side to me. And yet I also had a flamboyant side, which was the, the more percussive player, because there was only three of us. And in a three-piece, you have to kind of, you can't just sit on time all the time. You've got to kind of get a little bit more flamboyant and hence those kind of drum feels coming out that I did on Pat Travers, putting it straight. Um, two different drum sets. So as we said earlier, I mean, on the Making Magic, I had a, a, a Heyman kit, 22 bass drum, 12, 13, 16 floor. I had an 8, 10 and a 12 staccato tom-tom, which was funny enough talking about fiberglass. They were made of fiberglass. Um, and so then the Putting It Straight album was when I moved to Sona. The first time I, I had a Sona drum set was in 76, 77. So that, that was the, the, you know, microphone up the bum of the, of the drum because there's no bottom head on it, concert rack. Uh, but that, my style really came from the place, bass players I was playing and the music I was listening to at that time. So um, moving on, Pat then went from you know, you know, heavy, bluesy, riffy stuff, you know, and, and I could open and shred out a bit. And then I went from there and, and ended up playing in, <clears throat> doing a bunch of sessions. And then I ended up playing with a guy called McKitty, which was another free piece. 
right? Uh, Donovan McKitty and Charlie Tumarai from Bebop Deluxe was on bass. Another great bass player. He was great. I saw them a few times. Yeah, phen phenomenal. So then from there, I ended up working with the French rock band called Trust. But I still took my, that early genre, that, 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 that feel that I had through my early, because I grew up <clears throat> listening to the greats in, in the 60s. You know, I, you know, I was, I was uh, 60, it was 63 when I first really got into playing. 60, I was 10 years old. I'm, a, I'm, I'm an old git, boys and girls, so watch out. Respect your elders, that's all I can say. <clears throat> so, um, you know, that's where my influences came from, those, those, those bands of that time and that genre. So, yeah. Yeah, I just thought the drumming you played on those records, they were very, and I'm going to be like, I'm very honest here, they were very inspirational to me and influential. Because, you know, I'm surprised I didn't discover Pat Travers on my own. My younger brother brought the record on. Oh, yeah. That was it. So I, I was hooked. And those records, I still didn't put it straight the best of all of his albums he ever did. That yeah. album's amazing. And then, Eric, who else? I, you were inspired a lot by Bonzo, right? Yeah, everyone. Cozy Powell, um, you know, Denny Carmasi, Tommy Aldridge, Buddy Rich, Simon Phillips, mm. Carmen Apice, you know, all, you know, the usual suspects. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nico, you're a big buddy guy too. I think all oh, three of us are huge buddy buddy fanatics. Absolutely. Well, I don't think anybody that can can that plays drums. Uh, he there, there, there was no one ever since Buddy that can match. I mean, there's phen phenomenal players. Eric's great. Uh, you know, um, Thomas Lang, people like that. You know, there's so many great players today. But we all owe what we've got to the one maestro, which was to, in my book was Buddy Rich. He was incredibly flamboyant, amazing speed, amazing style. And um, he, 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 all drummers, if you don't, if, a, if you talk to a drummer, says, oh, I don't think, oh, Buddy, I prefer Gene Kruber. Well, yeah, I prefer Gene Kruber because he was a bit more rocky, but I still put Buddy Rich at the top of that list. Without a doubt, you know, you get these greats, Buddy Rich, you have Gene Krupa, you've got Louis Belson, the great Ed Shaughnessy, all these great, Ed Thypin, all these amazing guys from the 30s and 40s that we all take what we've got from them. And uh, I, I, I mean, the guy that set me off, uh, which I, I, I um, didn't mention in that, that great list because of the reason is he was the man that made me start to pick a pair of sticks, that was Joe Morello. And, uh, you know, people go, well, you've got, yeah, you've got all these great jazzers. Why don't you play jazz? Well, I grew up in the era where the, the, the popular music at that time was soul and pop and R&B. 
I've lost yeah. you. Hello, where you gone? Where? Where? There you are. Where? Yeah. So you know. Um, yeah. Of course. Uh, so Joe Morella started me, and, and my chronology was Ringo Starr. Oh, Joe, Joe got me going. I saw him do a solo and, on, with Dave Brubeck and went, that's it, Dad. I'm going to be, who is that fellow? Oh, that's Joe Morello. I want to be like him. He said, you'll never be as good as Joe Morello, son. And that was it. My career in drumming started there. Then it was Ringo Starr, Charlie Watts, the wonderful and great Keith Moon, and then John Bonham. Those four guys primarily molded my style of playing. And of course, you had, had you know, uh, you know Carmine up to see um Dino Donnelli, all those kind of guys. Uh, and of course the wonderful and great Ian Pace. And all of the people that we've been mentioning are, are just stunning and, and and are great role models for any drummer to listen to and get going. Yeah, they, they those are all amazing drummers. Yeah. Um your practice and warm-up routines, either on the road, off the road, before mm. a show, if you even have time to practice before a show. I know in Eric's case he's got There's so the key. Many- fan things to do so what do you guys do to just keep not only staying you know limber and fresh and in Mm. shape but growing your drumming what's what are your routines what do you do eric i think well i try to i think just keeping in some reasonable physical shape a lot of times stretching is really important you know i use a you know resistance bands and just keep myself stretched out and limber try to just do that because i think that helps a lot um, I don't get a lot of opportunity when we're actually on tour because of our schedule and getting ready with all the costumes and stuff to get to warm up, which is really something I miss. When I played in other bands, I did have time to warm up. In this situation, I don't. But, and what um, do you do when you, when you can warm up or when you're off the road and, and, you can, and you can play and practice, what do you work on? I do probably the most typical things most guys do, play singles and doubles. You know, and and paradiddle inver- inversions of, of of different paradiddles. Just because most of the things you play are single or double strokes, so they're kind of applicable to whatever you're playing. And it's really about just keeping your muscle memory. You know, your fingers and your wrists limber. And you could because it's like riding a bike. If you don't play for a while, you're you're going to be a little wobbly at first, and before you know, it comes right back. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what do you think? Yeah, for me, um, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to be able to take a small drum set on the road with me other than me big one. And um, t- the primary reason I do that is so I can annoy my tour director. <laughs> he freaking hates it. He goes, you know, because sometimes backstage you, you can't find a, a separate room. And, uh, and by the way, the rest of the band have all laid the law down and said, do not put Nico next to the dressing room, okay? Now, sometimes you can't, you, you, you know, backstage doesn't allow that freedom of, of being able to choose a room away from everybody. But I take a four-piece kit, and I usually start off with just, just a hi-hat, four, two and four groove, and then I, I start, you know, I do like a quarter note on the bass drum, and then I double that up, and then I do a 16 note just to get my foot working. And then, of course, the proverbial where Eagle's there, because we're doing that in the show anyway, I usually end up picking a song, which is one of the more difficult songs to play, to warm up to. Um, and that where Eagle's there as the, you know, the, the middle eight section, as the, like the four quarter notes on the bass drum in a pattern that, that, that is just not just on, on side of the triplet feel, but it gets my foot going. And then um, 
I just thought that, as, as, like Eric, do singles and doubles and and do press roles, and then I then I tend to to try. Uh, when I say try, I execute triplets, and uh, yeah, it'll be you know right, left bass drum, right bass drum, left left. The one I always find the left right bass drum one completely one of them, you know. So I just might mess around and and just try and get my dexterity going. Uh, at home, as, as Eric said, you know, you get you don't play for. I mean, I probably practice twice a week now. I'll go in the kit and have a knock, and and um, I when I go in and play on my kit, uh, I've got the Book of Souls drum set in the studio, and I'll just sit down and shred a solo, and then if I do, if I hit on something I like, I'll work on it and and try and break it down and, and try things left side first, which is one great thing I think all drummers need to know. If you're right-handed work on primarily starting left side and strengthening quarter and eighth notes on your left hand and, and leading fills. If you've got more than two or three toms, you can do that. If you've got a four piece, it's a bit hard to get down to the right side, first of all. But it's nice to be able to do that sort of thing. So I, I drive people nuts for about 10, 10 to 15 minutes before I go on stage uh, at a maiden gig. So, so, cool. you'll do, so 15 minutes on the kit and working yeah. through some of the things, that's enough for you to just get loose, get the muscles yeah. going. Yeah, and, and again, as I say, I can annoy, and, and so this is really true stories. You know, so we, we played a couple of shows in Brazil and uh, they, they had these, these uh, you know, the mock-up dressing rooms that they sort of like, they put together and I was in one dress and there was no ceiling, just walls, right? And the production office was literally across from where I was playing and I'm playing and all of a sudden, Three drumsticks all over the onto the top of me and on the kit. It was like, what the heck? And I could hear it, my Ian Day, my tour director, Oi, shut that bloody noise up. So I picked the three sticks up, added another couple and threw them back. And we started having a war. And these drumsticks are flying over the wall. It's hilarious. But the band, the band, they're great. They they go, oh, can you keep it down to five minutes if we're not next door to one another, you know? Because there's nothing worse than just hearing a drummer crack out a solo, you know. Uh, well, when I say that, that's for the guitar players in the band and the, the would-be drummer singer. He's okay. But um, here's another thing. I'm just going to tell you a real story. A story. I play left hand out, right? And the reason I do that is I get a bit more weight for less effort on the snare drum, more dynamic. And... Um, so when I play, I always leave my sticks on top of the floor, Tom, on, on my big kit or on my practice kit. So what happens is Bruce Dickinson will go in and decides he's going to have a whack in the afternoon if he's in early or whatever. So he picks that pair of drumsticks up but turns them around the normal way. So he hammers it and chips all the wood off, right, and he sticks them back in the bag. So I go, on, oh, all right, or he might leave them and I pick them up. Of course, what happens? I'm playing it butt end out where he's been beating all the cymbals up with a stick, whatever. That's a bad thing. So whatever you do, boys and girls, when you're would-be drummer, singer, bass player or guitar players want to have a go on your drum set, give them their own sticks. That's all I can say. Just bear that in mind. You play, you play left hand with the butt end out. Yeah, yeah, always have done, yeah. yeah. Uh, I do that sometimes. I used to do that earlier years to get that more oomph, more weight. Yeah, yeah, and it's less effort, you know. And I mean, we, Eric, when we were younger, we—I'm I, pretty sure I, I remember seeing you with that with uh, Alice Cooper. And the last time I actually saw you playing was with him, and we were in—we were in uh, where was it? Either 
It was one of the big festivals in Europe. No, no. It, well, no, I, I don't think... I, the one I remember was you guys played and it was the Stairway to Heaven golf tournament. And I'm trying to remember where it was. It was it was a good number of years ago and um, you you guys were playing it. But, yeah, anyway, um, I forgot what I was going to say to you. But, yeah, you know, I find that, um, you know, when we were younger, we'd try and break everything. Hit them hard. Give it some, you know, because that was how you thought you had to play, you know, especially in a rock and heavy metal band or hard rock exactly. band, you know. And well, now you, it's... Well, people told me, you got to play harder, you got to play harder, you got to have power and drive yeah. the band. So and that's you, why, yeah, I found it easier, <clears throat> excuse me, easier to get a little bit more dynamic out of that city. The only thing is you have to practice doing a single stroke roll evenly because you get, plus the fact is the actual drumstick sounds different the note of the stick, you know, because you've got more wood, this is, so it's a denser sound. And the, the dynamic is you have to adjust the left side. So I'll bring the right up a bit more to do an even, even stroke single or even a double. So yeah. that's, uh, that's, that's the only difference of, you know, uh, where in a practice routine, you have to have to change it out a little bit, you know, but I all find right. it, you know, being on an old git, <laughs> I need all the help I can get now. And I mean, this is a weird thing. People say, you got a massive PA out front. Why don't you just play quietly and let the PA drive the, the, drive, you know, drive the sound? Now, that's all very well. A drum kit, actually, the lighter you hit it, the better it sounds, the bigger it sounds. Because when we're actually powering it, it's choking the air. It's too quick. You know, really? so, you know, you look at people like J.R. Robinson, you know, he doesn't hit the kit hard. And even Vinny, you get these amazing big sounds. But, you know, we're in a rock band. The guys on stage want to hear that kit. They want to, you know, they ain't going to rely on a monitor system. Well, that's why, you know, Bruce is always up behind me. <laughs> he don't want to be down listening to the monitors. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of equations that have to be taken into consideration as to how your style develops with your band. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. So, guys, we've got so many questions so we're, we're, we're picking the ones that represent the, the vast majority because we'd be here for two weeks if we answered even half of them, uh, it literally. But we're going to get to most of them just through the similarity. So first one, Nico, yeah, Mike. how did you end up playing barefoot? And did you have to make adjustments to your playing to accommodate it? Or was it just easier to play that way? What, what's the story? Well, I, it's, I think <clears throat> it stems back to when I was learning to play <clears throat> i <clears throat> excuse me no i haven't got covid boys and girls i hope not anyway <clears throat> just a frog in the throat <clears throat> um so um when i started learning <laughs> when i was practicing as a kid in me in me, me, me front room at me mum's house i played in bare feet and it was just a natural feeling for me to play and then as i went through my career um i went through uh my first professional band, real touring band, was Streetwalkers, and I'd take my shoes off so and socks off and stand them next to my hi-hat stand. And then it just grew from there, and I, I played without, without shoes on. Uh, and then I started, I found boxing shoes, Lonsdale boxing shoes, a very thin sole. I like to be able to feel the bass drum pedal and the hi-hat stand. And um, so then I, had, I, I used boxing boots for a while, and I, I transferred that into Maiden, uh, because, okay, I was using a speaking pedal forever, was my chosen bass drum pedal. And the problem with the speaking pedal, it had ribs on it. 
and it, you know, there was uh, slots on the on the around the edge of the footplate, or you know, about half inch in from the from the edge of the footplate, and it kind of would tear your foot up. Uh, so I ended up using the boots, and then DW came out with a five thousand pedal, which was quite smooth, and it only had the five thousand embossed on the on the plate. So I went to bare feet again. So I flip flopped. <laughs> That's weird, isn't it? Flip flop with bare feet. Um, <laughs> so I I then. When when I went went with the DW, I started to go back to playing in bare feet again because that's how I prefer play. It's just because um, it's like no disrespect for drummers that play with gloves on. Uh, some some drummers do that to protect their fingers or whatever. You know, or they feel they can get more power. I don't know. I feel like I need to feel the. Girl, wind. It, eh? I'm kidding. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I just kidding. It's not <laughs> I never understood the glove thing. I just no. Think that, no. You know, uh, they, it's, it's, I got to tell you, when I was younger, I played barefoot as well. Yeah. And yeah. we didn't have drummer shoes, and I wanted to feel that connection. Yes. I would take my shoes off. And I, I wrestled as a kid so that I wore wrestling shoes, which are like boxing yeah, shoes. Very similar. Yeah. Very thin. But a lot of times when we go out and do the encore, I come out and take my boots, you know, I put my boots on just to come out and take a bow. When I go back, a lot of times I would just leave my shoes off and play with just the socks yeah. on. That's what I did as a kid. I played barefoot like you. Yeah. I wanted I wanted my foot to feel really connected and I just felt like a better control. Yes. So for the encore, yeah. Eric, for the encore, you would, you would sometimes just play barefoot as well. Barefoot or just with the socks on, but I, I'm, I'm like Nico. I, I, as soon as he started saying this, I'm like, oh my god, I did the same thing as a kid because I just it just felt better. I had better control. Mm. I liked feeling my feet on those pedals. Yeah. So, Eric, question yeah. for you: Do you uh, what was it like to record with Black Sabbath in the late '80s? And a uh, person asked, "What was the departure of Glenn Hughes like?" So, a little off topic okay. coming, but well, go ahead. When I first played with Tony Iommi, that was supposed to be a solo album, which became a Black Sabbath album. And Glenn Hughes sang on my, um, that was actually the first record I ever did in my life. So um, I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I just kind of made it up as I was going along. And um, Glenn Hughes, uh, Glenn was, you know, Glenn had never, never um, fronted a band just as a singer without a bass. And he didn't even know he wasn't going to play bass until he showed up for rehearsals and there was a bass player, a guy named Dave, you know Dave Spitz, Nico. Yes, sir. Yeah. Dave the Beast. So Dave, Nick, uh, Glenn shows up at rehearsals and he's like, nobody told me anything. Swear to God. So it was, just, it was just, you know, he was like a fish out of water. And so after about five shows, he was struggling. So we got this guy named Ray Gillen, who somebody found him in a club in New Jersey. And he became the singer. And uh, uh, so, so it was, you know, it was, it was a bunny. That Black Sabbath record, that was your first record? Yeah, Seven Star. And then we did another album called Eternal Idol with, um, and Bob Daisley came in to play bass on that, and Ray Gillen was the singer. But then thing, there was a lot of management issues, so I left, and I went, to, I went with Bob Daisley to play with Gary Moore, and uh, Ray Gillen ended up quitting. He was going to have a band with John Sykes and Cozy Powell, which that never happened. Um, you know, and it just kind of all fell apart. Everybody went their separate ways. But it was, you know, I loved playing with Tony with Tony because the guy writes the best heavy riffs. Um, the guy's mm -hmm. the, the king of that. You know, and, uh, you know, but 
it was just probably not the ideal time to be in that situation for Black Sabbath, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Well, still an amazing, amazing, amazing moment in your life, yeah. especially that early on. Mm-hmm. So, Nico, how did you end up in trust? And was this, the, the, this particular uh, reader says, was this before or after the band's famous meetup with ACDC's Bon Scott? Ah, yeah, it was after, actually. Uh, but, okay, so uh, they did a fa- uh, uh, an album called, I think it was Repression, was their first uh, album. And they were they were in Scorpio Sound in London. It's not there anymore. It's a beautiful. It was a beautiful. It was a room in a room studio. You know, you you would appreciate this. I mean, it was on springs and it was a stunning room. And um, it was in Houston, underneath Houston Tower. Uh, it's a Sainsbury's now. Would you believe it? But uh, anyway, so they were in the studio doing a mix on some songs that they recorded. And they were working with a guy called Dennis Wainrich. Now, Dennis Wainrich was the engineer on Making Magic. And they got talking about um, Pat Travers. And Nono Krief, the guitar player, turned around and says, oh, Pat Travers is one of my favorite heroes. He's one of my heroes. And Dennis turned around and said, whoa, I know Nico, the drummer. And he went, no, you don't. This is God's honest truth. And Nono didn't believe that he knew me. So um, next thing I get a phone call and Dennis says, here, I've got this French band. He said, they're, they're bigger than, you know, they're bigger than sliced bread in France. Have you ever heard of them called Trust? I said, yeah, I've seen their logo with a big bulldozer thing, you know, contraption. On, you know, he said, uh, well, the, the guitar player doesn't know I know you, but uh, you need to have a word with him. So he put him on the phone, and Nono was like, I don't believe I'm speaking to Nico from, you know, you, you know they're two of my favorite albums and this, that, and the other. He said, do you want to come to the studio and have a jam? Which I did, and we played for about four hours straight. Apparently there's a tape of it somewhere, quarter inch, and uh, that was it. That's how I, began, how I sat into, and it was in 1980, late 79, 1980. So then uh, they offered me the gig, uh, but the only thing was I had to commute to Paris. No big deal, well, I suppose, you know, it was an hour flight. But uh, anyway, so I worked, I had five days rehearsal with them, and then I did a, a, a first show in Paris Saint-Germain. I can't remember the name of the gig, it was a massive gig, it was like a, like a, a conservatory sort of place, all glass. And of course, I, I had to learn 24 songs in five days and they didn't have a set list. This is the God's honest truth. So I've got uh, Boom Boom, the, the drum tech sitting behind me and, he, and Bernard would be speaking French, which I don't speak. So we've got to do Lalit. I go, how the fuck does that one? Oh, sorry, <laughs> how does that go? And he, he'd come up and he'd sort of hum the song to me and oh, right, I've got it. And I'd count it off. And I remember about halfway through this first show, I thought I knew what song I was doing and I counted it off and it was the wrong tune. And uh, that was it. So and it, and that's how I got the gig. Wow. I didn't Amazing. get fired after the big cock up, but uh, yeah, I, I, I did two years with them. I did an album actually with them. So Eric. Uh, I gotta say something. You know, Pat, when Nico was in Pat Travers, they were very, they were like a musician's musician's band. So everybody was a whatever you love Pat Travers because you realize the high level of musicianship and but uh, 
A lot of people may not know Pete Willis, the original Def Leppard guitar player. He loved Pat Travers. He wore his hair, played a melody. He right exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mini Pat Travers. Mini Pat, yeah, Pat, yeah, yeah. That old melody. So, Eric, your drum sound on the first Badlands album. What'd you use for drums? What kind of room did you record in? There's a there's a huge amount of fans out there that just love the sound of your drums on that record and, and other records, and they want to know specifically what you do in the studio. That was a Pearl. Well, it was two different kits because it was done in LA, New York, one on one studios here in North Hollywood, the big room. Uh, that's if you look at the record, it said East Side, West Side on the label, and the songs on the West Side were done in California, East Side, New York City at the record plant. But both times it was Pearl uh, MMX maple kits. Okay. Uh, Pearl and and what you and any special techniques in the studio or just close mic standard stuff. Ambient room mics that was close mic. We tried to go for more natural type sound. Although I know they did use some sound replacement reinforcement a little bit. I was told when they mixed it, which a lot of people were doing. Whether uh, even though drummers didn't want that or like that, but you know producers and engineers have their methods and techniques sometimes and. You know, what's sometimes frustrating, you go and you get your initial sounds, you spend all this time or whatever, you get a lot of great sounds, and you hear the rough stuff, you go, wow, this sounds great, raw, ambient, real drum sound, and then by the time you hear the final mix thing, you're like, what happened? Right, mm -hmm. sure, sure. Yeah, now there's a lot of tricks in the studio that, that get mm -hmm. applied sometimes. Nico. Yeah, Mike. How did you come up with the intro groove to Where Eagles Dare? Now, let me just say up front, Where Eagles Dare is one of my favorite Clint Eastwood movies. Yeah, yeah. And, and one of my favorite Maiden songs. But the fan base out there are obsessed with this song. I mean, it's yeah. like one after the other after the other. We're Eagles there. We're Eagles there. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk about We're Eagles there. Well, and you can know. I ask you something, Nico, before you go? Yes. Yeah, go ahead, Mike. Before you go on to describing this, I always thought that, that something about the drumming reminded me of Manic Depression by Hendrix. Like somehow uh -huh. you took that influence thing and then you made your own beat yeah well I, i've got yeah i mean mitch mitchell was a big influence too you know, when we were talking earlier on about you know listen what music you were listening to and what, what you know what you take from people mitch was a stunning player i mean he you know there's there's that classic three piece where he would not just sit on time he'd be flying out all over the shop and uh funny enough you know um mitch mitchell uh he he, he had lots of lessons from jim marshall Man who made the amplifiers. So, uh, geez, not a lot of people know that. But yeah, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah Jim. Jim was Jim actually was a, a was a, a drummer and singer. And he started off when he was twelve, tap dancing. He he, he, had, he had a lot of physical issues when he was a kid, and, and the doctors said you need to uh, go and do tap dancing, and he did. And then he ended up he was the only fella in this tap dancing class, and um, they asked him to do this Christmas play. Uh, you know, Christmas pageant thing, and he, he said, "We need we need you to sing for us." So he started singing, and then he started to take the drums up. And he actually was a, a very well-renowned drum teacher in the late 40s and 50s in England. Not a lot of people know that either. Anyway, uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean, Mitch was was uh, uh, you know, yeah. Thank you for that that compliment. That's really nice. But where he was doing, there was a is a there's a long story behind it, and I won't tell you the whole story. But when when Steve came up with the riff. He, he, he said, look, he said, I've got this riff. 
I'm still writing the song. He said, but I want a big drum intro. And I went, well, how big do you want it? He said, as big as you like. So uh, I said, can you show me what the riff is? And he said, he's put his bass on. He's going, right. Right, and I'm going, no, 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 that's a guitar part. What are you playing? He said, no, that is it, soppy. I went, okay, so it's all triplets. Right, oh, God, gosh. He put a disco beat of that, you know. <laughs> so anyway, first part was, he's gone off, he's carried it, he said, I'm going up and finish, going, I'm halfway through the song, I've got to still finish it off. So he said, go ahead and do the drum fills. I started on the six inch drum, went all the way down the kit. Back to that really good, back to such stupid drum fill. Well, that'll do. Harry called him down. He came down. I said, I did this big drum fill. And he went, he stood there in front of the bass on his arms, kind of easy. went, I said, what, what's wrong with it? It's too long. I said, I thought you said you wanted the big, big F off drums fill. Yeah, not that big. So I thought, all right. I started, I went, back, 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 do Something stupid like that. He's gone up. He's come back down. Harry! Then he's gone, back, 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 Nah, still too long. And then, then if I'm not, if I recall rightly, Bruce came in and was saying, well, why don't you do it like something like, you know, and it's like that. And then Harry went, oh, babbly doodly, babbly doodly, babbly doodly, something like that. And I went, oh, okay, fair enough. And so he's buggered off and I sat there and, and I just came up with that babbly doodly, babbly doodly, babbly doodly, doodly, back. So he's come back down, I've played it. He went, that's it, that's great. I said, right, now we're gonna make the rhythm work behind what you're playing. So he stood with the bass and we worked out the rest of it, which is all based around a triplet. And then uh, the rest of the song, we actually learned in NASA at the uh, Compass Point Studios. But it was the first track that we actually recorded when we got there. So um, we, we had to learn the rest of, you know, cause he had it up till the, to the uh, or the solo section, and uh, and then he, uh, we had to arrange the rest of it. But um, but the main beat you're playing to kick snare symbol, right? Yeah. yeah. That always remind me, not the same beat, but it. I always thought, oh, this sounds like a Mitch Mitchell. It's a, like a Mitch Mitchell kind of Jimi Hendrix experience band ah. beat. I said, well, I wasn't consciously thinking of that, but I'll take it. So obviously, if you're old enough to know that generation of music, when you hear somebody play something, you go, oh, I, I kind of get the influence. Yes, so yeah, yeah. Pick that up. Yeah, I think we all, I think sometimes subconsciously, we, you know, we, we might, we, we all lend things from each other, you know, you know, there's only so many beats and so many rhythms, and this is, there's, it's the permutations of them that sometimes you can play a part and it'll remind you, it's like a melody, you know, sometimes you hear a piece of music and you go, oh, that reminds me, that's a, it's not a direct nick, but it's very close, you know, there, there's things like that where you're going to find something that you're playing uh, I've never really had a problem with that because if, if it's if it's plagiarism, fuck it, I'll use it. You know, sorry, I'm swearing. I do be, I do beg your pardon, everybody. Uh, I've been good so far. It's only the second time, um, but um, yeah, you know, I, that's that. What's that, Dave? Am I getting told off? <laughs> <laughs>
Do we have one of those? Do, you know, do we have the button to mute? Oh, you did. I got you got me. Brilliant. Boys and girls, I don't know if you saw that. Did they see that? Oh, yeah, I think they did. Oh, Blair, I'm sorry. I'm, I've been yeah, ever so good. I'm, I love it. Now, me. look, Nico and Eric, what? What are your favorite songs, some of your favorite songs, just even a couple that you love to play live, that you really just, you know, what, what are they? Eric, start with you. What are, when you're playing, if, if of, now let's, let's pick Kiss. I know you've played with a lot of different bands, but you've been with Kiss for a long time. Well, what are a couple of your favorite songs? I would say like, like Parasite, some of the early, you know, Parasite, I like 100,000 Years, you know, stuff that, um, that has more, you know, a little more interesting instead of just, Straight time keeps me. Mm. So, Parasite and Hundred Thousand Years. Yeah, they're fun drum songs. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And do you well, do you do you like? I mean, you sing great. So, do you love uh, the? You know, when you're singing, you know, do you is that something you particularly like doing? The lead vocal stuff as well. I, mean, I like it, but uh, I mean, I'd rather just, in a cool. perfect world, I'd rather just be a drummer. But in this particular band, you have to. So, which changes how I approach drumming completely, um, uh, because I have to be conscious of the breathing and maintaining a, you know, so I don't blow my voice off. I, if I play too physical, I will lose my voice mm. from grunting. A lot of drummers, I don't know about you, Nico, but I grunt, I kind of, I mean, I grunt oh. a lot. <laughs> you too. Oh my gosh. I get into so much trouble in the studio, they actually gag me. Because <laughs> it's you know like in judo when they do the the they go <laughs> I'm like <laughs> I'm just like, it's 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 a subconscious thing too I'm not I'm not physically doing it because I'm finding the drum feel difficult to play or anything like that it's just a it's just an expression of the emotion that I'm feeling and yeah. it's not not every time but nine times out of ten you'll hear me you know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, so I talk to myself a lot, funny enough. Uh, you know, usually if, if Bruce is singing off, off uh, like the second verse twice, I'll go. Would you say that you're maybe sometimes singing your drum parts as you're playing them, kind of raising them vocally? Because that's what I find. No, I hum them sometimes. <laughs> that's what I mean. It's not singing. I mean. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it, it, you know, if all be told, you know, every drummer's probably got something like that going on. I think it's very unlikely that they'd be totally quiet. But sometimes in the studio environment, you just, you know, you don't want to be making noises and, and stuff because it will be picked up by the numerous microphones around your drum set. Um, so but, what do you uh, like to play live? What are some of your favorite songs? For me, um, well, I love all the Maiden songs, all of them. The, 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 the least favorite ones very few but uh, my all-time all-time favorite maiden tracks hallowed be thy name and um hallowed has always been and that's off the of the uh, number of the beast album and <clears throat> excuse me and when i first joined in 83 on my first touring with maiden it was part of the it was a stable song like iron maiden which finishes the set hallowed number of the beast had always been there trooper from from peace of mind now but onwards so you get stable songs like fear of the darks always played now and, and and hallowed was played every tour since i joined the band until about five years ago and there was some issues with some copyright 
hurt, you know, um, plagiarism. Some guy accused the band of this, and, and they were, you know, it went to court, and we decided, Harry Turner Rose, we're not playing it. Now, here's the thing, because it's my favorite song, and it's Steve's favorite song to play, I said, if you ever decide not to do it, I'm leaving the band. And I reminded Harry about that five years ago, and he said, I should have taken it out of the set a lot for <laughs> I said, all right, I got the drift. Um, so, and the reason that song, it's always, it's, there's something about the, the, the first couple of verses are sweet. Uh, you know, it's easy, you know, easy going. And then it gets into the solo section. There's three kind of sections in the solo, and, they and it drives in a dynamic from here to here to here. Then you've got to come back out and bring everything back down for the for the last verse and choruses. Um, but there's a there's a, a passion in that one song that just gets me. Every, it's like I've never. It's like the first time I played it. It's one of those songs that it never gets old for me. And to be honest, none of them do. Um, um, Flight of Icarus was one of my least favourite songs, but we 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 pulled it out of retirement on the Legacy of the Beast tour. And now we found the right niche because it, it was too slow when we recorded it, but it, it dragged at the, at the recorded tempo. And now it's got a really nice, comfortable feeling. So, um, yeah, and, that, and, and Where Eagles Dare, it's, it's just one of those songs that I love to play because it, it's a drummer's track. It, you know, there's so many different nuances in, in it within the solo section and the bass drum parts change a little bit and um, never play it twice, twice the same. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Actually, that's yeah. one of the other things about playing your drums. You don't change your song, your arrangements in in your playing. Uh, the only time we actually change things is is at the end of a song, which we call a bird's eye. You know, you know, and then yeah. you and you finish. Now, I, in a song, might change where I play and position the drum feel. I might start on the 10-inch tom instead of the 12, or like vice versa. So, you know, you don't actually change the, the actual part that you're playing. Very important, because otherwise, you can't put a Billy Cobham feel in, because the rest of the band will go, yeah, yeah. what's right. that? It has to be consistent and reliable within certain parameters <laughs> yeah. so everybody knows at least somewhat what to Absolutely. expect. Absolutely. Yeah. No well, disrespect guys, to Billy. I love his playing too. Oh, Cobham's amazing. Oh, so, guys, I want to thank you very much for taking the time today. Um, just an amazing, amazing insight, amazing webinar. There's, there's just so many people out there who have been looking forward to this, and they really – they got everything they bargained for and a lot more. Incredible insight. Thank you for sharing that, Nico and Eric. Uh, very, very grateful. On behalf of Modern Drummer, latest issue right here, Bill Ward, 1970, June issue. So thank you, everybody. ModernDrummer.com slash subscribe. Well, before you go, I've got a bit of a Black Sabbath story for you. 1974, I toured with Black Sabbath in Europe with this, with Streetwalkers. That was one so of our first. In yeah. this, this time period. And I'll tell you what, he was the first drummer I ever saw use oxygen. And he in 1974, he hit the kit so hard, that band drove so hard because of Bill. Apart from the fact, Eric, that, uh, you know, the riff master himself, you know, um, Tony, just stunning. And, and he was, I ne and I was in awe of his power that he played with in those days. And he actually had, 
actually oxygen bottles on the side give me in between songs and whatnot. So, yeah. uh, Bill, Bill was the original animal from the Muppets. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look at that picture of him. I don't remember him looking like that in '74 though, with all the big beard and the bushy. Well, this is yeah, this is uh, this is this 1970 literally when. Yeah. When, when, <laughs> but, uh, and, and, and just one other thing, real quick. Uh, I, I did a little charity thing with Ozzy about I must be 10 years ago now. And I hadn't seen Oz in a number of years, and I thought he won't remember the, the stories of when we were touring together. And he actually reminded me of a story that I had completely forgotten about me nearly falling off the back of the, the ferry coming back from Europe to Dover. And I won't tell you any more about that story, but uh, he reminded me of it. And I thought, you remembered that? Because <laughs> well, I, I did. didn't, and then he reminded me, and I'm like, okay, yes, I remember now. But uh, anyway, what a, what a great band. That must have been well, great playing for time. I mean, amazing. amazing. We got some great Thanks so much. Incredible. Guys, I also want to share with Thank you, you David. Thank you. modern drummer snare drum. You can see modern drummer right Ooh, there. Look at that. And yep, an absolute yes. hand. This is a tribute to Rush and Neil Pernum. Yeah, no, I, I saw a picture of that. On, that is a, so uh, what are you going to post your mind to me or I'm going to pick it up? <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you asked because we're going to be, Modern Drummer is going to be releasing some special edition drums that we're going to offer on a limited edition to the drumming community. Uh, so be on the lookout for just some incredible, incredible designs. I also want to thank again and let me go here to our incredible sponsors. I want to thank Pearl Drum, pearldrum.com, uh, for all of your support, your amazing drums. Nico McBrain's Drum One, the drum shop that he always envisioned is now a reality, and man, it's a blast online or in person. Drumone.co.uk, you got to check it out for all your drum needs. Moderndrummer.topeka.live, innovative, virtual meet and greets this is just the beginning of that we all know about going backstage and having meet and greets and meeting your idols now it's going to be online it's very exciting drumchannel.com 24 7 365 drum education available for, from so many great drummers so much learning can be done uh it's very affordable and it's uh it's just infinite in what you can learn on drumchannel.com and of course modern drummer dot com slash subscribe thank you for all the support everybody thank you nico thank you eric thank you taylor whipple our producer yeah and uh everybody stay safe stay healthy keep drumming ta-da Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.